It's good uh, to be here with you this morning, and it's good to be uh, in the pulpit. I haven't stood up here for quite a while, since the last about 100 times I preached, it was down there, but I'll try it up here this morning. Welcome especially to those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, This morning we're going to talk a little bit about some of the issues facing our denomination, but not as directly as perhaps might be satisfying. I'm assuming that the vast majority of people here today have heard at least something of the conflict that our denomination faces. Perhaps if you're here for the first time, you're visiting, you're not as aware, but uh, take it from me and from the person you came with, that our denomination is in a crisis. I've had the, uh, I guess it's a privilege, to get more involved in some of the political aspects of the denomination over the last year, representing you, the church, and sitting on various committees and task force for the denomination. And in that capacity, I become increasingly convinced that the issues that we face have only a slight resemblance or reference to what we see printed in the media. A far greater concern than what we see printed in the media are more foundational issues. Issues that have everything to do with the need for our church to once again be clear in its proclamation, particularly in its understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what we believe about God's word. I was back at the General Assembly, the annual meeting that our denomination has uh, back in Louisville, Kentucky last June. I was there uh, under the auspices of serving with a task force that was trying to strategize for a new uh, church-wide outreach to college campuses. In that capacity, I had the opportunity to see our denominational's hierarchy and processes at work. And as the week went on, I became increasingly frustrated, increasingly concerned. In the middle of the week, there was going to be a big debate on the floor of whether or not our denomination could make, again, a clear, articulated statement about whether Jesus was, in fact, Lord or not. Well, prior to going to the General Assembly, I had happened to have breakfast with a person who'd been attending the church here. And as he and I were talking, he knew I was going back to Kentucky, and he actually had some connections at Churchill Downs. And he asked if I would be interested in going and visit the place where the Kentucky Derby was while I was back there. I... I said, sure, you know, whatever, not really expecting to get any kind of a phone call or anything from him. And sure enough, the very morning that they were going to have this big debate on whether Jesus was Lord or not, um, I got a phone call from some mucky muck at Churchill Downs inviting me to an executive box right at the finish line in the the grandstands. Well, against probably all good sense and judgment, I decided to go, being very frustrated with what I was hearing on the floor. And as I was there, I uh, did the really stupid thing of making basically a protest vote on a horse uh, that sort of summarized (laughs) what was going on. And, um, you know, while everyone was kind of looking at their fact sheets or whatever those things, those racing forms and making, I guess, wise decisions on what to vote for, I just went for the name. Well, I put everything in my pocket down, which was $2, and uh, uh, the horse won. Um, And... Just to prove that uh, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, the name of that protest vote horse was Kiss the Devil. Um, I'll probably get some letters about that one. Um, We live in an extremely relativistic culture, and you've undoubtedly heard the phrase said by many people that truth is relative. And many say that there is no absolute truth. It's somewhat ironic that in both of those statements, there's an absolute truth claim. But what's needed today is clarity. We have a need for clarity in our our world and in our church. 
This morning as I preach, I've chosen a passage that might be familiar to many of you out of the book of Acts. It's the fourth chapter, and as you're turning there to Acts 4, beginning in verse 8, let me set the stage for you. It's not too long after Jesus' resurrection, the church is growing, and Peter and John go to the temple to pray in the beginning of chapter 3, and on their way they encounter a lame man begging at the gate. The lame man asks them for alms or money, and Peter says those words that we have a song that many of our children sang, maybe we sang it, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have do I give. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the man began walking and leaping and praising God, and we can all probably sing it. But there was a mighty miracle that happened there at the hands of of Peter, speaking on the name of Christ. And the man went in the temple, and they all recognized him as the guy that was always sitting there at the gate begging. And a crowd started gathering, and Peter began to preach. And boy, what a sermon. Over 10,000 people were saved that day. Your text says 5,000 men, but that's not including women and children. That's a powerful sermon. Well, this upset the Jewish leadership and the religious hierarchy. And so they dragged Peter and John before their council. And they demanded to know what what happened and and what authority are they doing this. And so read with me, if you would, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick, and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which... We must be saved. Let's pause there for a minute. Please keep your Bibles open because we'll be coming back to it numerous times here this morning. Clarity. Clarity. The story is told of a worker who asked for a pay raise from his supervisor and he got a note back that said the following. Because of the fluctuation predisposition of your position's productive capacity as juxtaposed to standard norms, it would be momentarily injudicious to advocate your requested increment. The puzzled worker went to his supervisor and said, held up the note and said, well, if this is about my raise, I don't get it. To which the supervisor said, that's right. (laughs) If you're parents, perhaps you've said this to your children in an exasperated moment and trying to get them to understand. Or if you're not a parent, I'm sure you've undoubtedly heard that phrase. It says, let me make one thing perfectly clear, trying to get you to understand something. Our youth, our student ministries director, Lars Rude, not necessarily known for his political uh, expediency and his sensitivity, but one thing that Lars is known for around our staff is his clarity. People know where he stands. You see, we are drawn to places and to people where there's clarity, where we understand what they're saying and where they're coming from. The opposite of that is this hedging and this garbled speak that becomes about as fruitful as trying to look out your windshield yesterday with those windshield wipers that you forgot to change and now you made a note to yourself that you're going to do that? Why do we do that? Why do we speak that way? Why does it seem that we hedge? Well, it comes from our insecurity. Really, it comes from a desire to be liked and a desire to be well thought of because when we're clear, we upset the status quo. 
and all of a sudden people have to respond and react. And it's much easier just to kind of not ruffle the feathers. That's not what Peter and John did. They clearly said in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. The minute you start talking like that is the minute that we get that label exclusive. It's as if in the church exclusivity has become the worst indictment that can ever be said against us. But you know what? The idea that Jesus alone is Savior and Lord is not an idea that the church made up. It's an idea that's clearly biblical. It's an idea that's found throughout scriptures. Every single gospel writer had that idea. Matthew, in the seventh chapter, quoting from Jesus, said the following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Mark records Jesus' words in the 16th chapter where Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. Luke records Jesus' words in chapter 12, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. John, in the third chapter, a verse we probably all know, quotes Jesus as saying, or actually doesn't quote Jesus, just simply states the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. If that is true, then the opposite is true, that those who do not believe in him will perish and will not have eternal life. Paul said a similar thing in Romans 10, verse 9. says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And again, if that is true, the opposite also must be true. The idea of being exclusive, the idea that Jesus is the only way is not something the church made up. It's actually the specific teaching of Jesus who is recorded as saying in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We as the church are to be open-minded on all sorts of issues. I grew up as a Baptist, and I converted to Presbyterianism. But you know, I grew up under that adage of don't drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do. And probably many people in my church... They're a little older now, but they're telling their children and their grandchildren, don't go see Harry Potter, don't read those books. Or maybe you've seen the email that's going around talking about how pagan uh, Christmas is and you know, putting things under a tree, all that. You know, that's just a shame that the church gets so closed-minded on really stupid issues. Now, we as believers are supposed to be open-minded about many things, but there is, in fact, one thing we are to be very specific about. We're not to be open-minded on... How we're saved from sin. How we're saved from sin is something we ought to be crystal clear about. And that is only through the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for us on the cross. You've heard that we have become a part of what's called the Confessing Church Movement. Under Michael's leadership, before he left, the session voted unanimously to affirm three things. And they're very much in keeping with 
the, the mission statement that we developed here about four or five years ago, proclaiming Christ, called to holiness, empowered to serve. This confessing church movement now has over 1,100 churches that have sort of signed on to this, representing just under half a million membership. And it says three things. One, that Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. Two, that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. And three, that God's consistent call to His people is a call to holiness. We want to be unambiguous about that. We don't want to be relative. We want to be crystal clear about where we stand. Okay, probably a lot of you would agree with what I'm saying, but the next step is how do we implement that in our own lives? How do we practically get to a place where we can articulate the kinds of things with the kind of force that Peter and John did? Let's read on. Verse 13 gives us somewhat of a clue. Right after they made this very bold statement in verse 12, Peter and John, it's recorded, saying, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they, being the Jewish council, were amazed. Let's pause there. It says they were uneducated. So often we wait to that time that sort of is out there and we can't really define it where we want to get it right. We're afraid to speak because we don't think we have all the right answers. But you know what? God continues, seems to use people who know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. John chapter 9, after he healed the blind man. says that they were ordinary people. You know what? We serve a God who takes delight in making the ordinary extraordinary. Why? Because God, I believe, doesn't want us to be the ones that get the glory and us the ones that are in the limelight, but rather that he gets the glory and that he's the one that's in the limelight. That's certainly what Paul's sentiments were in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit and in power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Verse 13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed, and get this, and recognized them as companions of Jesus. Companions of Jesus. What a great indictment. What a wonderful thing to be said about them or maybe about you or me. And yet we have to ask ourselves, would there be enough evidence for that indictment to be said about me in looking at my life? Would I be recognized as a companion of Jesus? It's helpful to understand a little bit of Greek at this point because the word that is actually used to describe this idea of being with Jesus is not merely a word that means they were in the company of. You see, there's two Greek words that could have been used that both are translated in English with. One is the word meta, which normally would mean a companion of. But a far more intimate, powerful word is the Greek word soon. And it almost has the same idea of knowing someone versus really knowing someone. David didn't just know Bathsheba. David knew Bathsheba. In a similar way, this Greek word soon has a word, it's a word that's infrequently used in Scripture, has a much more intimate, much more personal sense. And so Peter and John were recognized not just as people who hung out with Jesus, but people who had an intimate, close relationship with their Lord and Savior. One key in how we might be clear is that 
we've got to be with the person that we're being clear about. We've got to cultivate a daily relationship with Jesus Christ. One that's not just a casual come to church once a week, but one that is intimate and deep and close with Him. Well, let's read up, beginning in verse 14. Verse 14 says, When they saw the man, they being the council, who had been cured standing beside them, that's Peter and John, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, What will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Let's pause there. It's important to understand that this council that Peter and John are standing in front of is the same council that just a month or two previous had sent Jesus to death and had him crucified. And imagine the boldness of these two men. It's the boldness that's mentioned in Proverbs 28.1. says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The story is told of a guy named Fred who came to the pearly gates, and when he arrived there, there was a very short line, and so it was just a minute or so before he was there standing, anxious about whether he was going to get through the gate and into the heavenly city. And an angelic being came in front of him with a clipboard, and after taking some kind of pertinent facts, name, and address, he said, you know, Fred, one thing that would really help me out would be to, to tell me some story in your life where you did a purely unselfish, kindly deed. Fred thought about it for a minute or two, and he said, oh, I, yes, I think I have one you might be interested in. And the angel said, well, go on. And so Fred said, well, I was walking down the street, and there was an old lady being mercifully, mercilessly beaten by this giant thug of a motorcycle gang-looking guy. And the angel said, well, what did you do? He says, well, the first thing I did is I ran right up there, and I knocked over the guy's motorcycle just to draw his attention away. And then I reeled around and kicked him in the shins and told the lady, run for help. And then I reeled around, and with my fist, I just nailed him right in the stomach. And the angelic being said, God, that's impressive. Because that's amazing. When, when did all this happen? Fred looked at his watch and said, about two or three minutes ago. <laughs> We're to be bold. We're not to be foolish. But we are to be people who are unapologetically zealous. People who are unintimidated and passionate about our faith. And that's certainly what Peter and John demonstrated. Read on in verse 19. No sooner had the council warned them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And verse 19 says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking what we have seen and heard. I've spent a lot of time on various campuses here in my role as college director and college pastor over the past years. And there's a guy at UCLA that I call Big Dave. And Big Dave is just this giant guy. And every time I see him, he goes, Roger the Dodger, praise God, how are you doing? Hallelujah, God is good, isn't he? And I'm kind of going, whoa, hey, Dave. <laughs> Let me tell you something about Dave. Dave is an athlete. And as such, he's a guy who's who's experienced all the successes of being an athlete, and most of those being the vices that athletes have to struggle with. And this is in his B.C., before Christ days. But Dave's life was radically changed, and he now has a relationship with the living Lord. And he is so excited about it that, like Peter and John, he can't help but speak about it. 
We as people get all worked up and excited about worldly things and good things. If your son or daughter gets accepted to Harvard or that school that they're going into, you can't help but tell someone about it. If a good friend of yours is going to get married and you're just thrilled for them, you're going to tell someone about it. Heck, we get worked up about football games more than anything else, and we are fanatics when it comes to our home team winning or losing. We get all worked up about worldly things. But boy, can we be pathetic when it comes to talking about our relationship with Christ. One of the things that the tragedy of September 11th points out to us that ought to smack us in the face, and maybe even the faith, is these terrorists who claim so many innocent lives were willing to die for a lie. And are we willing to live for the truth? Let's be courageous. We want to. But how do we do it? Look again at verse 20. Verse 20 says, They could not keep from speaking about what they had seen and heard. I think there's a clue right there in the seeing and the hearing. You see, we as people are very good at hearing. We've heard it all. We come to church religiously. We do all the right things. We've heard it all. I believe the breakdown is in the seeing for most of us. Tony Campolo's son, Bart, tells a story of his junior high basketball team. He says, after two weeks of practice, this unruly bunch of rugrats were not listening to the coach, and the coach was just going crazy. And so the coach got an idea. He took them to the Friday night varsity basketball game, got them there early, got them third row seats right at center court, and just allowed these junior hires to soak up the cheering of the crowds and the posters on the wall and the shiny uniforms and the cheerleaders jumping all over the place. And Bart says that team was never the same. Just preaching alone is never going to convince you to be as clear and articulate and as bold as you need to be in your faith. What's needed is a concrete vision of what God can do and a fresh assurance that He's still alive and well and doing work in your life and the lives of others. We need to not just come and sit and hear. We need to go and roll up our sleeves and do and see. This Advent season provides many opportunities for us to do this. You know, some people who showed up here on the parking lot last Monday had a wonderful chance to see as they packaged 1,300 Thanksgiving baskets. And those that stuck around got to see the joy in someone's face as they came and received something that they wouldn't have had otherwise. In your bulletin, there's all sorts of ways to get involved this Christmas time. You can adopt a family and provide some joy in the lives of some families who have nothing. We have a ministry called Christian International Scholars Federation, and these are scholars all over the world who come to study at Fuller and get their PhDs. And there's a blurb in your bulletin called Share Your Blessings. And December 9th through 12th, you have an opportunity to bring some of the things you never even use and dump them off here and share your blessings with people who need them, who are studying right across the town from us. We have said this here before, one of the biggest indictments of the way that we as Christians buy into the materialism of our culture is that dilemma we face every Christmas of what to buy the person who has everything. What if we got really crazy and didn't buy them anything if they don't really need it? And instead, there's some agencies that have provided what are called alternative giving options, where you can actually buy on behalf of that rich uncle you have a goat that will bless another family in another country. 
If you're interested in that, call our World Mission Office, and Emily will get you hooked up on some alternative giving. Talk to Mary and Barbara in our Urban Ministries Department. There's so many wonderful ways to get involved here in the city and to roll up your sleeves and to start seeing. And I challenge some of you to actually consider one of those short-term mission trips. They're not just for the youth, they're for every one of, the pe- every one of you here. To take a risk, to go out there and to see the power of God to transform a life in front of your eyes. And every one of us need to simply be about the business of sharing our faith with our friends and family at work or in the holidays. To not just hear, but to begin seeing. Let's make one thing perfectly clear here, Bel Air, at this church. That we serve and follow Jesus Christ alone as our Savior and Lord. But as we do so, let's do so courageously. As people who have been recognized as companions of Jesus, who are so excited about what they've seen and heard that they can't be shut up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word because it challenges us and it calls us to a place of accountability that sometimes is uncomfortable but sometimes puts up a mirror right in our lives and says, boy, we need to change some things. Forgive us, Lord, for our timidity. Forgive us for the ways that we buy into a relativistic culture and start hedging and getting all garbled in our speech. May we as your people be crystal clear on how we are saved from sin. Lord, not bludgeoning people over the head with that, but Lord, knowing that the most loving thing we can possibly do is to share the good news of the hope that we've discovered in Christ. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who have not yet made that personal step of faith and and acknowledged Jesus as their Savior and Lord, I pray, God, that your Spirit would move in their hearts and that they would do so. God, be with us as a church. Help us to be faithful. Help us to always be loving. Help us to be clear. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.